Welcome to the Erickson Covenant Church Podcast. We're happy that you would join us for today's teaching. As a church, we're passionate about helping people find and follow Jesus, no matter who they are or where they are from. If you have any questions about Jesus, the church, or the teaching you're hearing today, please don't hesitate to contact us online at ericksoncovenant.ca. And now, let's listen to this week's teaching. Taylor Swift and Bon Iver just released a great new song called Exile. And it's a, a beautiful but a haunting song that expresses loss, a sense of displacement, uh, a sense of disorientation, of finding yourself in a place where you didn't think you'd be, where you didn't want to be. Now, listen to the words that are expressed by one side of this song. He says, I think I've seen this film before, and I didn't like the ending. You're not my homeland anymore. So what am I defending now? You were my town. Now I'm in exile, seeing you out. I think I've seen this film before. So much art and poetry gives expression to that feeling of loss, of disorientation, We see that down through history. We certainly see that in the Psalms. Waking up maybe the day after a terrible diagnosis, the day after a devastating loss, or maybe those moments after you've heard of a crushing betrayal. That feeling of disorientation, that feeling of loss, that feeling like now suddenly everything's changed and how am I going to live now? How am I going to survive this? How am I going to cope in this? What's life going to be like? When God's people were defeated and then driven into exile, hauled off into foreign land, the disorientation that they experienced, the loss that they were experiencing was profound. Everything they knew All that they had counted as secure, every resource, every plan, every hope had been shattered. And those who did live through it, well, most of them found themselves drug off into a place that they didn't know, where people spoke a language they didn't understand. They were tremendously disoriented. One of their poets captured his feeling of disorientation, his feelings of anger and rage in Psalm 137. He was a poet from the exile, probably just after they had been exiled into Babylon. And these are the opening words of Psalm 137. Listen to it. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. Zion is another name for Jerusalem, the holy city. There on the poplars, we hung our harps For there, our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? That's the question. How can we sing? Now that we're here, how could we just Act as, everything, act as though everything's normal and resume life as it was. We can't. 
If this is the new normal, what do we do now that we're stuck here? And this really introduces us to a tension that we can all experience. How do you live faithfully in a reality or a situation that you didn't choose and that you certainly don't want to stay in? And yet, perhaps, you can't really do anything about it. We can feel this personally. We can feel this sometimes in family situations or jobs. But we also can feel it more broadly as humans in a world that is broken, where there is tragedy and and loss and hurt and death and confusion and things just don't work. Even when our best plans seem to be coming together, it's not quite right. And as Jesus followers, we recognize that God has done all these amazing things and yet life still isn't quite what it should be. We're into our Renewed series and we're exploring this theme of exile. Now that God's people, as we talked about last week, uh, as we watched the story of the kings and the prophets unfold, that eventually it came to a point where God said, no more, and God's people went off into exile, into a foreign land, and the question that hangs there is, now what? Well, just as God sent prophets for hundreds of years to warn God's people, he also sent prophets to encourage them. He didn't just leave them without anyone to speak or anyone to share, or anyone to provide guidance. And as they went into exile, one of the prophets who did both, he actually was warning them before things happened, and then after they went into exile, he was present to encourage them and challenge them and walk with them, was the great prophet Jeremiah. As these exiles woke up far away from home, far away from everything that they would have known, it was easy for them to assume that this is all a bad dream. Uh, surely this will end in a couple weeks or a couple months. Uh, you know, surely there'll be some reprieve. And there were actually some other prophets, bad prophets, Jeremiah calls them, who were actually spreading that kind of false hope, telling people, it's okay, um, it'll all be okay, just, just, just hold tight for a second, and God's going to sort it all out, and we're going to be back home before Christmas, as it were. Well, not Christmas, but you know what I mean. Soon. And so Jeremiah sits down to pen a letter to try to set the record straight, and he sends this letter to the Babylonian exiles. And it's from this letter to Jeremiah that we get such rich advice for how to live in the middle of our own exile, in the middle of the tension of a life that isn't quite right, where we find ourselves displaced or experiencing loss or devastation, find ourselves in a place that we didn't choose, but we can't seem to change. And the advice he gives to them is incredibly relevant for us. And so I want to just walk us through the first 14 verses of Jeremiah 29. You might remember a few months ago, Diana Wedge um, did a short little video exploring some of these same themes out of Jeremiah 29, because there's such richness here. Well, this is how it begins. Jeremiah 29, just just to give you a little bit of an overview, verse 1, this is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried off into exile from Jerusalem. And it gives details of who he entrusted the letter with and gives a kind of a, a time stamp on it. Well, what does he want them to do? 
I mean, now that they're in Babylon, what's going to be his advice? Should they continue to resist and rebel, you know, keep up the fight, you know, sabotage uh, everything you can, uh, add sand to the engines, you know, of, of Babylon and, and, and do everything you can to manipulate and, 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 and maybe bring the empire down from the inside? Is that what he's going to say? Or should they just sell out and just say, you know what, this, that whole Yahweh covenant story is done. Let's just move on. Let's follow the Babylonian gods. They're clearly stronger. They beat us. We'll just go with them. Or maybe the advice would be they should just kind of huddle, play it safe, hide. And, you know, hope at some point we'll emerge from this. What? Well, Jeremiah gives three key directives that are, of course, nothing like those things. The first thing he says to them is, plant and grow. Plant and grow. This is what he says in verses uh, 6 and 7 of Jeremiah 29. He says, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters increase in number there. Do not decrease. That's his first point. Plant and grow. And what he's saying to them is this. Embrace your current reality and actually make the most of it. Plan to stay and prepare to flourish. In some ways, he's saying to them, be fruitful and multiply. You know, it'd be so easy to falter at this point, to diminish, to give up to abandon yourself to desolation and just think, you know, it's all over. Who cares? But Jeremiah is encouraging them to do exactly the opposite, to embrace their new reality and to flourish in it, to personally flourish in this new land, this new place, because he knows something that is crucial. The choice to grow, the choice to flourish is always ours, no matter what the situation The second directive that Jeremiah gives them is to bless and to serve. Verse 7, just next, he says, Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Did you catch that? That's actually kind of amazing, isn't it? To seek the good of the place and the people who actually were your conquerors. I mean, they can remember. It wasn't very long before when those same people surrounded Jerusalem. And were, they were fighting hand to hand with them. And their awful atrocities were committed. And, and they were drug off down, who knows how long of a trip, months of a trip, we know, that it took them to go to Babylon. You've got to think there were some hard feelings. There's a, there could be a desire to, to, to hold that resentment and anger. To, to actually not forgive them, as it were. But Jeremiah says, look, wherever you are, Seek the peace and prosperity of that place, of those people. And what's more, pray for it. Pray for that place. Pray for that city. You've got to know this would have been hard. I think really hard. So, so It would have been so much easier for them to have sort of sulked in their loss rather than sought the good 
of the people around them. But you know, people took that to heart. We have amazing stories out of the exile of just that happening. The biggest obvious one would be the story of Daniel and his three friends. I mean, they were the cream of the crop that were hauled off into Babylon and and their whole life was seeking the peace and the prosperity of their conquerors, serving them at the highest levels, and yet doing so in a faithful way, a faithfulness to Yahweh that he honored. What's more, Jeremiah tells them that by seeking the peace and the prosperity of their city, their place, their leaders, that they too would prosper. That the prospering they bring to the community around them would benefit them directly. And we know that as you look at Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, Abednego, as well as you look at the story of Esther and and Mordecai, and then next week we'll look at the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah, we do see that it's as they served and blessed their pagan captors that they in turn were blessed and prospered. In fact, God used their position, the place where they were able to serve, to actually advance his promises to them. More on that next week. Jeremiah knows the choice to serve and bless as opposed to sulk and resent is always ours too. No one can actually take take that away from us. That choice is ours. Third directive Jeremiah gives is that they would turn and trust. This is what he says next. Turn from what, you might add? Well, this is where he gets to the convenient lies that are being told by these so-called prophets that would actually keep God's people from flourishing in captivity, from flourishing in the exile. He says, you need to turn away from that. He says, yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. Again, he wants them to turn away from those lies so they can embrace the truth, the reality of their situation. You are here because of this long story on unfaithfulness. But the fact that you're here doesn't mean that God has been unfaithful to you. God is faithful and even in exile. He wants you to flourish. But as you're flourishing, there's a balance. As you're flourishing here, as you're planting your gardens and you're building your homes and you're marrying your kids and having kids of your own, don't forget God's promises. Settling down doesn't mean giving up. Jeremiah doesn't want them to just turn from the lies. He wants them to trust God's good plans For their future. So he goes on in verse 10 to say this This is what the Lord says When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place, referring to Jerusalem, Judah, Israel. And then one of the more famous verses that often is used for different reasons here it is God says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. 
What an incredible set of promises. God is assuring them that, yeah, you're going to be here for 70 years. In other words, many of you, maybe most of you are going to die here. But there will be a return. I have not forgotten you. I have good plans for you as a people. And yes, you need to accept your situation. But don't forget my future promises for you. Their current circumstance of exile is not their final destination. In fact, it's a training ground. It's a reset for what's to come if they will turn and they will trust. Those are Jeremiah's three directives. Plant and grow. Focus on personal flourishing. Bless and serve. Focus on enabling and helping the city and the neighborhood and the place you live flourish as well. And trust. Turn from the lies and trust my good plans. And the stories of Daniel and Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther tell us that they did just that. Well, how does this connect with us? Exile, as an experience, a, a feeling of displacement, things aren't quite right, is actually a metaphor that begins to develop through the intertestamental period. And then even in the New Testament, we see it emerge in a variety of ways, but explicitly by the Apostle Peter himself. Peter writes a number of letters in the New Testament. In his first letter, he opens it with these words. I want you to hear them. He says, to God's elect, God's chosen, the church. He's speaking to Christians. He says, to God's elect, and then he says, exiles, scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. We could just as easily say scattered among the provinces of Creston and Calgary and Quenelle. It works. He says, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. He picks up this theme of exile and he speaks to these scattered Christians as though they are in exile. Exile had become a way of understanding what it means for us to follow Jesus between what he did on the cross and rising again from the dead and what he has promised to do when he comes again to renew all the earth, heavens and earth, and resurrect us all to be with him. We live between those two great events, the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And in between, he's given us his Holy Spirit so that we can live the new creation now. And yet, all is not yet right with the world. Death, loss, hurt, murder, relational strife. These all characterize our lives. We know that. They characterize our world. And, and so as they grappled with that, they began to take this theme of exile and realize that in some ways, that's where we are. We're not home yet. Things aren't quite right yet. It described their experience as a people returning from Babylon and finding that things weren't quite right, but also continued to describe the experience of God's people as they looked around and said, you know, we know that God is king and yet it doesn't look like he's on his throne yet. Jesus' followers. We know that Jesus has come, that he is the son of God, the promised Messiah. He died and rose again and yet we don't yet see all of his enemies under his feet. 
And exile became a way of speaking about our reality as the scattered body of Christ. A little later in the letter, Peter picks up this theme again. And I want you to hear how closely it aligns with what Jeremiah himself said already. Peter said this in 1 Peter 2. He said, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Kind of sounds like Daniel. Live faithfully, live pure in, a, in, a, in the context of a world that, that would stain you, would ruin you if you let in. And then he says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. He says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Are you seeing that Jeremiah theme about blessing, about serving, about seeking the peace and prosperity of the community around us? He goes on to say, live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. I think that Peter had been meditating for a while on things like Jeremiah's letter to the exiles. I think that's why he calls them exiles. I think that's the, the, the filter through which he's understanding this time in which we live, where, yes, the kingdom of God has come, and yet it is not quite here fully. How do we live in that? Well, with some of the things he has told us, and of course we're told all through the New Testament, where we live as the people of God, filled by the Spirit of God, in the context of a world that's still groaning. And when we articulate that experience, we recognize it's like We are in exile, that we're not yet home. So how do we live this out in our own exile? It could be a personal situation that you're feeling the exile experience very strongly right now. It could be a more general sense that this world is so broken and and lives are being ruined. And how do we live and, and, and flourish in the midst of this? I don't know what it is for you, but how does this connect? I want to bring the application to us by asking three focus questions. These three focus questions follow the three pieces of advice that directives that Jeremiah gave, but I think they apply to us. And I hope you'll take these questions, maybe write them down, and consider them in the week ahead as you ponder what it means for us to live in exile. The first focus question I have has to do with health. And here's the question. How can I grow exactly where I am? How can I grow exactly where I am? In other words, it is quite common for people to feel like I can't grow here or I can't flourish because of this. Or until this changes in my life, I really am not going to experience any kind of flourishing, any kind of, of renewal, any kind of growth. But the truth is, Consistent through Scripture, 
We see people stuck in very difficult situations. We see this through history as well. And when they make the choice to grow, they can grow. It doesn't mean their situation is good or easy. It doesn't even mean that their situation shouldn't be changed or that there may not come an opportunity where they can change it. But for a moment, to just pause and say, where I am today, this situation that I'm in, this health diagnosis, this relational conflict, uh, this struggle with my child, or this malaise at work, how can I grow where I am right now? To actually embrace your life, your location, to acknowledge this may not be exactly where I want it to be, but I'm here now and I can make a choice to flourish. I can make a choice to grow. It's not only true of us personally, but it's true of us in a world that often feels like it's going to crush us with the, the evil, the tragedy, the struggle. That we can say, but I can still flourish. I can still grow. And so, I can't sketch it out exactly for you, but I do know if you ask this question, how can I grow exactly where I am? If you lean into personal health, personal flourishing, the Holy Spirit will guide and direct you. You may seek the counsel of friends. You may talk it over with with a a spouse or, or, or someone that maybe lives away from you. Send them an email, but ask the question, how can I be growing where I am now? That's the first focus question. The second focus question is this. How can I make my community better for others? How can I make my city better for others? How can I make my street that I live on better for those who live there? In small ways, perhaps perhaps in large ways, is there a key way that I can actually make life better for them? I can serve and bless them from where I am the city, maybe the school, uh, maybe, maybe it's, it's, it's an organization that you're part of, or maybe one that you want to start. Maybe it's just in simple ways, looking around your neighborhood and saying, how can I make this neighborhood flourish more? Like, what would it look like for my neighborhood to be more welcoming, more friendly, more connected? How can I make my community better for others? This is a question about help. The first one was about health. This one is about help. How can I make my community better for others? Ultimately, that's the call of Christ. It's Peter's call to us to live such good lives that the world around us says, whoa, we can see God through these people. Even if maybe we were tempted to malign them or dismiss them or even say false things about them. Their good lives are such that it leaves them without accusation. How can we make our community better for others? And then the third focus question has to do with hope. I want to ask the question, where do I need courage? We look around us, we look into our own lives, and we can recognize that there may be places where we're tempted to believe a distracting lie, to believe something that says, you know, you can't flourish here, or you shouldn't care about them. Or don't put yourself out to serve others. Just look after you. We can be tempted to adopt certain lies of self-preservation or to end up fighting the wrong battle or just huddle and protect. I think we need to ask the question, where do we need hope? 
where do I need to let God's good plans, not just for me personally, but for my family, for our church, for our community, for our world, to let his good plans fill our vision in such a way that we're filled with hope as we are growing and serving, as we are seeking health and flourishing and help and goodness. Where do we need courage in that? Maybe not a fearlessness exactly, but a courage to move forward. The lies we believe can be of all kinds. Sometimes they can be lies that sound right. They're even dressed up a bit. When I was um, younger, uh, when I was in my teen years, um, there was a lot of talk in those days about the soon coming return of Christ. And uh, we would, as a result of that kind of belief that, that Jesus was going to return very soon in a very specific way and that certain specific things were going to happen, believe me, they had it detailed out pretty carefully, or at least the preachers we had Sunday evenings in my home church sure did. But the result of that was often a negligence, an unwillingness to engage, a sense that uh, politics or education or the environment, why worry about those things? Why would we be concerned about those things flourishing? Because it's all going to come to an end soon anyway. And that was a distracting lie that sounded very Christian. Now, we don't need to debate end time stuff here. And you can embrace fully that Jesus could return any day. The point is this. The consistent instruction through Scripture is that when we get a hold of God's good future, when we embrace the resurrection life of Christ, even if He could come tomorrow, and He could, we still live into the flourishing of His world. We seek the good of our neighbor. We seek the good of our community. We serve the environment, the the, the non-human aspects of our creation. We long to see life and flourishing come across the board. And so you may need to identify some of those lies that you've believed that have kept you from flourishing or kept you from serving the flourishing of others to put them aside so that you too can trust. God's got good plans for us. You know that? Good plans for you. Good plans for our church. Now some of those good plans we may not fully see in our lifetime. Well, let me rephrase that. We certainly will not fully see them in our lifetime because many of those good plans will not come to fruition until the end, until the full renewal and resurrection and recreation of the world. We know that's true. But even in the shorter term, the promises that God has made to us, uh, the the, the promise to to shift things and to bring change and new creation, we may not see all of those things. It may happen out of our sight or may happen past our own lifetimes, but God is faithful. And we can hold on to his goodness, his character, that he would never forget. He didn't forget these captives and exiles, and he hasn't forgotten us. More, perhaps, than they ever knew, we have received a deposit. We've received the gift of the Holy Spirit, who brings God's future into our present and lives with us in this exile experience, bringing us forward into his good future. Friends, We may be in exile. We may be foreigners in some sense. We may be able to look around us and say, this is not yet home. It will be, but it's not yet right. We live at odds 
with so many things around us. We chafe at the reality of evil and suffering. We chafe at the reality that we ourselves often contribute to that. But friends, we can flourish. God wants us to. And we can contribute to the flourishing of our world. He wants us to do that. And all the while, trusting that God will take the little bit that we offer and by His Spirit, mix it together like yeast in dough and work out His kingdom, following up on His promises and doing something today that may only ever make sense in the future. God is good like that. As we conclude today, I wanted to share with you a song by Red Collective. They will sing it for us. But it expresses this beautiful cry that Jesus, the Father, the Spirit, would build their kingdom here. It echoes the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, that his will would be done, that his kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. And I invite you, as we finish today, to sing along with Ren Collective, that Jesus, you would build your kingdom here. Thank you for listening. We hope today's teaching provided you with life-changing truth and valuable insight. We hope you've learned of some practical steps forward in your spiritual journey, whether you're finding Jesus for the first time or you have been following him for years. Do you know someone who would be encouraged by what you heard today? We invite you to share this podcast so they can be encouraged too. For more information or to ask more questions, you can connect with us through our website, ericksoncovenant.ca. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for the Erickson Covenant Church.